Another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is September the 18th, 2020. This is episode 2734 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a good lineup from the experts for you today. Remember, if you want to send a question in for one of the experts... Just put TSPC Expert in the subject line of your email. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Say, my question is for expert council member, and put their name there. And if you don't remember their name, put like the knife guy or the mechanic guy or whatever, and I'll probably figure it out. Put the doctor guy, I won't know which one. Say the old doctor or the young doctor, right? And uh, then you just tell me your question. Try to make that question like a single sentence or two at the most. Then hit the return key a couple times and give me details. That makes things really clear as to what you're actually asking, and it helps you figure out what you're actually asking, too. Trust me on that advice. I am a professional. Here's what we have coming to you today from the expert council. Paul Wheaton, who we don't hear as much from as I'd like to, uh, is with us today to talk about Wafati greenhouses and large Wafatis. What's a Wafati? Paul will tell you, but it's kind of sort of an underground house. It's not really an underground house. It's kind of sort of an underground house. It's really cool. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of electric sharpening tools with the knife guy. That would be Patrick Rohrman. Uh, the lethal threat of lightning from old Doc Bones. Uh, dealing with vehicle spot rust and using salvaged fuel cans from Derek Aban Pietro. That would be the mechanic guy. And websites for agricultural and farm-based businesses from Darby Simpson. That would be the farmer guy. And understanding PSA testing and prostate cancer risks as we age. Dr. Ken Berry, that would be the young doctor guy. Anyway, with that, I actually have a question today that came from discussions on the TSP blog. And it wasn't really directly asked this way. It was more of a rhetorical question, but I thought it was interesting. And it was about... Designing the cities of tomorrow, what modern cities should look like. And I'm not, to be fair here, I'm not answering it in the spirit that it was asked. Nick in Mongolia asked this, and I think he was talking about, well, how do you redesign New York City? How do you redesign Chicago? And and that's an interesting discussion. And as much as I am out on cities, I think that there's tremendous potential to take some of these urban blights and turn them into something really amazing It, we'd start out probably by reducing their population by about 50% so that people could spread out a little bit more and make use of what's there. Like, I don't believe in not using infrastructure that already exists. That's wasteful. However, I'm going to take it from a different standpoint. What if you said, I shall dub thee Sir Jack Spierko, Knight of the Realm of the New City, and I shall bequeath to thee a piece of land. And thou shalt turn it into a city. And I was starting from a blank slate, a square of dirt big enough to make a city uh, of towns and villages that would house somewhere. Oh, I won't tell you how many because that will be my first component to exactly how I'm going to design this. So that will be my anchor segment at the end. What I want to start out with today, and this fits with a video that I released just this morning. I recorded it last night. So those of you, I don't know how many of y'all out there actually follow me on YouTube. 
not all of you, because there's a hell of a lot more podcast downloads than there are YouTube views. But I did a video I released yesterday morning that was, I called it like a 1980s macho man, off the top rope, elbow to the head, you know, Jack rant on people making excuses. And it used the F word a lot, and it was pretty brutal. And, you know, people ask me why I do that. Well, one, because it was genuine. I really felt the way that I was saying. And the other side of it, I put videos out like that. Like, my wife asked me yesterday, you need a drink tonight? And I'm like, not really. I'm going to have a beer and do another video. But why? She said, I thought you were in a bad mood. I heard you out there cursing. I said, no, I was, I was putting together a video for people, and that was the style of the video. But when I do a video like that, it gets a hell of a lot more views than when I do a nice, happy video. But I like to do nice, happy videos, too. So I followed that up, and last night I sat down and had a, a Nigramadello uh, beer in my gardens and talked to everybody for about 35 minutes about the pure joy of homesteading combined with good lifestyle design and permaculture ethos. And I bet you it gets less views. I bet you it gets less thumbs up. I bet you it gets less attention, but it's probably far more useful. And... I think both of those videos are worth watching. Of course I do. I made them. But anyway, I do. If you want something to check out over the weekend, you haven't done so yet. But it fits. That second video especially fits. It actually fits with the first one, too. Because the first one is this excuse that I've heard so many times that is basically it's not worth doing because insert bullshit excuse here. So what prompted the most recent rant about it was people, when I was talking about homesteading, get away from the cities, building something that really matters, building up your life. Well, they'll just take it away from me anyway. They'll just take it away from me anyway. Or you start talking about building a business. It's too many regulations to do what they want. And it, you know, it just goes on and on. It goes all the way back to 2008 when I started the show. I started talking about gardening. And I had people, well, they don't want to garden because when the shit hits the fan, the zombies will take my tomatoes. Right? And so I, I did this rant video. And it fits this quote, too. And so both the Jack stomping on your ass video and the Jack, hey, motivating you to this is what's possible video fit this quote from John Irving today. If you are lucky enough to find a way of life you love, you have to find the courage to live it. So whether it's just, I'm going to, once I know what I want, I'm going to design it into my life. That's what the second video was about. Because you can do that. That's the thing. It's, it, it, there's so much freedom in the world, really, because most people are stupid. Do you realize that that is actually what gives you freedom? And I, here's what I mean by that. I, I mean it from a standpoint. Here's another quote. Remember Tommy Lee Jones in, in Men in Black? A person is smart and people are stupid. Right? Every human being is smart. We'll talk about that a little bit in my anchor segment today. But overall, people behave stupidly. And because people behave stupidly, if you don't, you can pretty much have whatever it is you want. You can design it. You can make it happen. The, the, the struggle, and that's why I recently did a show about finding your passion and your why, is most people don't know what the hell they really want. I talked about that in my video last night, the one I released this morning, about my friend Brad. I did a podcast about him years ago about how when he lost a job and his life was in turmoil, he was like, I, I, spent, I took him up to my place in Arkansas before we lived there for about a week, for a weekend. And I've heard two Army guys drinking beer and shooting guns and just reminiscing, you know, we, this is a guy I served with. And it just seemed like a good idea, and it was, it was horrible. But in the end, you know, when I started saying, okay, well, since you're going to spend the entire damn weekend crying about what you don't have, what do you want? 
Once he described the lifestyle he wanted, I said, do you realize there's millions, I mean mil tens of millions of broke-ass rednecks that live exactly the way you're talking about living right now? And you have so much more than them and so much more ability to live their way, the, their way of life than you do right now. You could be doing that. And, if you know, I, I, I don't use Facebook anymore because of their censorship. I, I will tell you that I do occasionally pull Facebook up just so I can see what's going on with my friends. I don't participate, but I view. And uh, this guy just bought a brand new house. And it's a you know, three-bedroom house on Maple Street type arrangement. And he doesn't need to be doing that right now. He could have exact... He still ain't where he says he wants to be because he doesn't really want to be there. And he doesn't know what really will make him happy. I'm convinced to this day he doesn't really know what will make him happy. And I hate to say it. I mean, the man's almost as old as me. Um, so he's, he's close to 52. And I don't think... Um, I don't think he'll ever figure it out. And I think that's true of most people. And I think that's another reason you can have what you really want is because not only do people behave stupidly, therefore leaving in a tremendous vacuum from the person who comes in with smart design, but most people will never be able to design what they want because they'll never figure out what it really is. We use this concept of if I only could, also known as the toolbox fallacy, and there's a million names for it, is an excuse for our unhappiness so that we don't have to face the work required to achieve it. And the first step is figuring out what we really love. If I really could live a certain way every day of my life, what would it look like? The minute you know that, you can design it. And in the words of John Irving, you have to find the courage to live it. Because it takes courage. Because it takes telling the average person who's like, well, that'll never work, to go piss off. It takes sacrificing things. It takes risk. It takes putting off till tomorrow the things that make you really happy, but knowing that you're doing it in a way that will let you do it in perpetuity. And sometimes it doesn't even require that. Sometimes it just requires, well, this is what I'm going to do. There are so many people that could start living the way they say they really want to, and as long as they actually do want to, they should. Right away. Right now. This minute. If you're lucky enough to find a way of life you love, you have to find the courage to live it. John Irving. With that, let's go into our first segment today. This one from the, the Duke of Permaculture up in the wilds of Montana, who is building his own community, kind of matching my, uh, my end thing, but I'm talking about a city. He's building a permaculture compound. Paul Wheaton, he's been playing with this thing called the Wafati, an idea that he came up with years ago. He talked about it on my show before he ever even built one. He talked about it for 30 minutes before he admitted he never had built one yet, but he's built quite a few now, and they do work, and they're pretty amazing, and he's here to tell you a little bit more about them. Hey, Paul, how are things going up in Montana? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. You sent me a listener question for the expert council, and it says... Uh, looking for an update on the Wafati greenhouse build and an opinion if a Wafati could be built with 2,000 to 2,500 square feet of living space for a large family. What would need to be adjusted if there is a place where the annualized thermal inertia effect drops because of larger square footage, etc. So this is from Adrian in Ontario. All right, so first part, the Wafati greenhouse update. By the way, we've got... We have, like, here at Wheaton Labs, we have more than a dozen people here right now, right? I think there's more than a dozen. I mean, in this room, there's got to be at least ten. Um, but it's lunchtime, so there might be some lunchtime noises going on at the same time while we're trying to whip out a recording. Well, Fadi Greenhouse update. 
I think that the thermal wells are in. Yeah, so we got the thermal wells buried uh, 30 feet below grade, and then we have our 9-foot cold trench, uh, cold sink trench installed, and now we are about to sink the next six posts, which will form the main body of the greenhouse itself. I got a note here that says lots of logs uh, have been dropped, limbed, and peeled, and there's more to go. I mean, I saw a big pile of peeled logs, and and this is a roundwood timber frame structure. Takes a lot of wood. (laughs) (laughs) But it's free, sort of. (laughs) Uh, Provided by Mother Earth. All right. Any other notes about the Wafati Greenhouse update? It's beautiful. It is looking really beautiful already. As, uh, for those of you where it's your first time ever doing roundwood timber framing stuff, how's that? Are you enjoying that experience? Who's who's new at doing that? I am. I think Lara is, too. I am new at doing that. It's awesome. I dug a hole today. Um, and Clayton dug a hole and then stood in it, and he scraped the edges with his feet. So uh, we have the best tools. Everybody's got to have a hobby. <laughs> I guess, but you all are putting in chainsaw and chisel time, right? Giving those mallets a workout? I haven't gotten to chisel yet. You will. Well, I will. You certainly will. I did. And and was it uh, a grounding experience for you? Definitely. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the second part. Okay, a wafati. This is the year. We're going to do the annualized thermal inertia test on Allerton Abbey, which is a small wafati, 400 square feet. Does it work? Does you know? Does the, all of the annualized thermal inertia stuff really work? We did some testing uh, uh, last winter, and the small testing that we did, we couldn't really do the real test because everything was bottled up after it got cold. But uh, the test results were very indicative. They showed positive results. Like, this is, I think, this is going to work. Now, Jen, you are kind of in charge of those tests. What is your opinion? I think signs are positive. I I think it has a pretty good shot of really working out this winter. It certainly has some thermal mass. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now let's contemplate the experiment of a 2,500-square-foot wafati. Now, my first thought is is that you could just make the whole thing just be really long and skinny, 2,500 square feet, maybe do bigger cells. Like our cells in, the, in Allerton Abbey are 10 by 10 cells, but you could do like 15 by 15 cells with fatter logs and some knee bracing and things of that nature. And then it's just long and skinny, and instead of having one gable roof on the downhill side, you'd have maybe much bigger gable roofs on the downhill side and maybe two or three of them. And uh, that's a very simple design, and in the end, I think it would work fine. And that's just a guess. But I would have to say that of all of our guessing for everybody, my guess is the biggest guess. By that, I mean I get to have the... I don't know, the biggest points for imagination, maybe. <laughs> but that's what we're doing. We're guessing. And so I kind of feel like we got to get more tests done. we got to build bigger wafatis and try those out. But they all come after this year's annualized thermal inertia test on Allerton Abbey. And then um, I do think we want to try something that might be closer to 4,000 square feet and see how that goes. And so I'm not answering the question. I'm totally dodging the question other than to say, yes, 
I think it will work, and I don't think you have to do much to modify it, although before recording this podcast, I think we've had three ideas on how you might introduce more thermal inertia, more mass into a larger structure. Does anybody have a thing they want to add? I just Well, I just think that, um, you know, it's the annualized thermal inertia aspect of the structure is as yet unproven, and so... Anything about building it bigger is just speculation, but we think we could build it bigger. Yeah. I, I think, A, this is going to work. Like, Al, the Allerton Abbey test is going to be a success. I feel very confident of that. And then, B, I think when we go bigger, I think it's going to be the same. I, th- I think that the existing design does scale, I think. And, but we won't know until we try. And then we will have new thoughts, but we've, we're already coming up with ideas on how to make it work better if it doesn't scale well. And so then we'll just optimize that design. So that, I don't know. Oh, and then the next thing is, is like, I think that there's going to be some good comparisons with Earthship designs and Ailer designs. So both of those have been scaled up to like an eight bedroom house and things like that. And I think those could be, uh, with, with minimal effort, uh, redesign for the Wofati designs. Anything else? Looks like we're out of time. Thanks, Jack. All right, next up, got a question for Patrick Rorman of MT Knives about electric sharpening tools instead of spending all damn day with a whetstone. Patrick, what say you? Hey, guys, this is Patrick Rorman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Tim Cook. Can you recommend an electric sharpener? So I'm, abso- I'm absolutely sure that this is sacrilege. However, I have a ton of steak knives that are subpar quality that I need need sharpening. And I can do it by hand but don't want to. I just want them sharp enough to cut and be safe. What would you recommend if you can? I know it goes against <laughs> everything you stand for. And uh, for that, I'm truly sorry. No. Tim, I use a electric sharpener every day to sharpen knives. Um, it's the only really quick, efficient way to get a lot of work done fast. And especially if you have knives that are in need of a lot of work, to do that on the stones just isn't time, isn't cost effective. So, what are your options? Jack likes to recommend the the work sharp Ken Onion work sharp, and while it is a great option, it's a affordable option. Um, the cons to it are, it's a really small sharpening belt, and it's a fairly fast speed. So the problem you have with a small cutting surface and the faster speed is you're going to create heat in the blade. Now, you don't have to get the blade real hot to do damage to the edge of the cutting, the cutting edge. Because when you're talking about the cutting edge, we're talking about an edge that is a micron or less thick. So, if you overheat the very edge, it's going to be brittle and it's just not going to hold the edge like it would if you sharpened on sharpening stones. So, that's the first downfall to a sharpener like that now with the belts being so small they don't have a very long life 
Some people will use them for a long time, but those the the, the abrasive becomes dull quickly. And the duller the brace the abrasive is, the more heat is going to be built up. So you're compounding the problem that is already there. That's why I use um, it's a professional knife sharpener that I sell on my website. It is more expensive, but in the long run, it will save you money and give you a better edge. It's a one by thirty inch belt, so you have thirty inches of belt. Um, compared to maybe the three or four inches of belt on the Ken Onion uh, sharpener. That gives the belt more time to cool off as it's uh, rotating around, and it also will stay sharp longer and keep the blade cooler. I throw away belts pretty quick. I sharpen about seven knives with a belt, and then I throw them away because I care about the cutting performance of the knives that I'm sharpening. For home use, you could get away with more sharpenings, but the duller the belt, the slower you want to go and the less steel you want to take off when you're uh, sharpening to avoid overheating the edge. The uh, other cost savings is going to come in the, in the cost of uh, buying belts. The belts that I use are approximately the same cost as uh, the Ken Onions, but they're 10 times the abrasive that you're getting for the Ken Onion sharpener. So that's why I would recommend that if you uh, had the money and it was going to be an investment, you know, you're talking about an investment that's going to last you a lifetime. I've literally sharpened hundreds or if not thousands of knives on my sharpener and it's still going strong. So uh, for the average homeowner, the sharpener like I have will last you your entire life. So, um, anyways, if you want to check out that sharpener, you can find it on mtknives.net. I'll provide a link. And if uh, the Ken Onion is more your speed, I'm sure Jack can provide a, a link for that as well. Thanks again for this question. Once again, this has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Make it a great day. So I do recommend the WorkSharp by Ken Onion. There's actually the cheaper version of it, too, made by the same manufacturer. The parts are pretty much the same, but it, it does a little less with angle sets and things like that. Um, it's around 120 bucks. You can get it for about $100. And in response to what Patrick says, you can buy a lot of belts for four hundred dollars, which the system he sells is worth five hundred sells for five hundred bucks, and it's worth it. I think that making that determination has a lot to do with what do you want. If you're looking to keep your average everyday use knives that you see as knives that you don't own for your entire life, fillet knives and things like that, steak knives that are fifty dollars a set, etc., sharp. The Can Onion is everything you could need. And it does have variable speed. It, it runs as low as 1,200 uh, surface feet per minute. So that's that's on the low setting. And I absolutely agree with the problems with heat, and I would suggest that you run it at the lowest setting. And I would love to see a new version of that tool 
able to run at some more more around 400 to 600 uh, SFM. And I think that would be plenty fast enough, especially with the smaller belts. I do feel that the heat can be largely mitigated by technique, meaning that we, we take a pass and we take a pass and we take a break. And we take a pass and we take a pass. And it doesn't take much to use this thing to get it to where it is hair shaving sharp. If you have knives like knives that Patrick makes, if you have really nice like shun knives for your kitchen like I do, and you want an electronic method of sharpening for those knives, then I would recommend you get Patrick's uh, knife sharpening system. But I'm also a big believer in lifestyle design and buying the right thing for the need. So to me, being able to take cheap knives like Wahoo Killers and fillet knives and shit like that and put them through that can onion and have them super sharp in a matter of 30 to 40 seconds um, is incredibly... It's totally worth having 120 bucks invested in that piece of equipment. And I get reasonable life out of those belts for sure. Now... When it comes to my shuns or something like that, I'll either go ahead and get out my own damn sharpening stones and do that by hand because it's not that often, or I'll have somebody like a Patrick sharpen those knives for me. And that gives me the kind of both worlds, and that's my approach because I, I honestly have to say one thing about a, you know, a $500 system like Patrick's talking about. It takes some time to develop the skill set to be able to use it and get what you want out of it. I found the Ken Onion took me about 10 minutes to get really good with. And uh, so I just think you need to consider it based on what your overall goal is. If you have a lot of really expensive knives and you want to keep them all shaving sharp all the time and you don't want to spend all the time it takes to do it with a stone, then I would get a system like Patrick's sells. So there you go. And with that, let's bring on old Doc Bones to talk to us about <laughs> getting fried by lightning. Doc, what's going on, man? Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net and author of books like The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide. Today, I want to talk about lightning. Lightning has received a lot of attention in the news as wildfires in the American West have continued to rage. Most of these wildfires are caused by humans, but lightning strikes have been implicated as the culprits for some of this year's biggest blazes. In the San Francisco Bay Area, for example, three lightning complex fires have burned over 800,000 acres of woodland. More than 13,000 lightning strikes have been recorded in California alone just in the last two weeks. Many of us associate lightning with rainstorms, but dry lightning appears to be involved in causing the latest fires. Certain storms produce thunder and lightning without any appreciable rain as moisture evaporates before reaching the ground. These kinds of events are not uncommon in drier areas of the country. Let's talk a little bit about lightning. A lightning bolt is a discharge of a large amount of electricity in the atmosphere or between the atmosphere and the ground. Air normally acts to insulate the positive and negative charges that are in clouds. At one point, however, the difference between the two becomes so great that electricity is generated and released. Boom! Many lightning events occur high in the atmosphere within a cloud, or maybe from cloud to cloud. That's most, but cloud-to-ground strikes are more responsible for injuries to humans. In recent years, the United States has reported dozens of annual lightning strike fatalities. Although the death rate from a lightning strike covers around 10%, the grand majority of survivors 
suffer some form of lasting damage. As an aside, why doesn't lightning strike airplanes? Actually, it does, and actually quite often. Commercial aircraft are designed so that electricity travels through them without any interruption. They're usually struck without experiencing damage. Now, when lightning strikes people, there are a number of ways in which a person may be struck. They can be struck directly. A person struck directly by a lightning bolt is usually out in the open. The electricity moves through the skin and also through the body's cardiovascular and nervous systems. Burns occur on the skin, but cardiac arrest from the current in the body, inside the body, is more likely to cause death. There are also ground strikes. When lightning strikes, say, a tree nearby, energy travels outward along the ground. This is known as ground current. Anyone near a lightning strike could be a victim. Indeed, this form of lightning strike causes the most fatalities and injuries in the world today. There are also side strikes, more commonly known as a side flash. This occurs when lightning strikes a taller object, again, say a tree, near the victim. Some of the current jumps from the original target of the strike to the victim, which is usually just a couple of feet away. This is why you shouldn't take cover under a tree. Then there are conduction strikes. Lightning can travel or be conducted along long distances in wires and other metal surfaces. This helps provide a path for it to travel. If you're in contact with a wire fence and lightning strikes some distance away, you actually might be affected. Inside, anything or anyone connected to wiring, plumbing, or in contact with any metal surface really can serve as a conductor. Then there are what they call streamer strikes. Streamers aren't as common as a cause of lightning injury, but they're still pretty dangerous. As the downward moving electrical charge of the lightning, the called the step leader, approaches the ground, electrical streamers are actually produced that rise from ground-based objects, even a person. If a person is involved, they could be killed or injured, even if the streamer never connected with the step leader, the bottom part of the lightning itself. The effects of lightning on the body are pretty terrible. It can be very lethal, of course, with cardiac arrests or very uh, bad beat patterns, arrhythmias, or respiratory arrest and lung inflammation, but you can also get things like ruptured eardrums and deafness. You can get eye damage, blindness, burns, of course. Mental changes are seen not uncommonly in people long-term. Memory disorders, sleep disorders, people experience nerve damage, numbness, pain. In some cases, there are broken bones, internal bleeding. Some people suffer from chronic vertigo, and some people go into a coma and never recover. There are, interestingly enough, distinctive scars that are caused by lightning, and these are called Lichtenberg figures. They form as a result of blood vessel damage, and they look sort of like red lightning scars traveling along the skin. They're very interesting, and they're actually quite beautiful, but they are some things that you really don't want to have. Go get a tattoo. When thunder roars, you need to go indoors if you're going to be safe from lightning. It's important to realize that being outside is dangerous when a thunderstorm is in progress. If you can hear thunder, you're in danger of being hit by lightning for up to 30 minutes after the last rumble. Get inside a sturdy building or at least a metal top vehicle, windows up, as quickly as you can. Strive to avoid being the tallest object in the area. Even when there are taller objects like trees or utility poles, stay away from them. Lightning will likely target them, especially if they're isolated. Avoid touching metal. It doesn't attract lightning, but it conducts it for 100 feet or more, as we mentioned. Once inside, stay off computers and other electrical equipment. Avoid touching plumbing like sinks and faucets. Stay away from doors, windows, and porches. Don't lean against anything metal or concrete. 
Lightning can travel through any metal wiring and bars that could even be inside your concrete walls or flooring. Treating a lightning victim is very problematic. Cardiac arrest is the most immediate cause of death, and this person needs first aid, therefore, right away. So call for help and begin CPR. If there is an automatic external defibrillator available, use it. Get the victim into a building if possible, by the way, because lightning can strike twice in the same place, depending on the situation. For the remainder of the injuries, treat them as you would burns or other trauma, but realize that some damage is going to be permanent. If you're stuck outside, well, if thunderstorms are in the forecast, please postpone your outdoor activities so you're not stuck outside. There are circumstances, however, where you might be outside and unprepared for a lightning storm. In these cases, leave high ground like ridges or hills. Get away from there. Don't take cover under isolated trees. If you're in the middle of a forest and can't avoid trees, pick some smaller ones to be under. Avoid rocky overhangs or cave entrances as shelters. Someone at the entrance may form a conduit between the cave roof and floor. The same thing goes with the covered porch of a house. Now stay away from lakes, streams, or other bodies of water which conduct electricity very well. Avoid lying flat on the ground, but stay low with as little of your body touching the ground as possible, sort of in a lightning crouch with your on your toes, but crouch down so you're as low as you possibly can. By the way, don't touch barbed wire fences, power lines, anything else that conducts electricity. If you're in a group, make sure to stay about 10 feet apart. Now, this actually does make an individual more prone to being struck, but lessens the likelihood of multiple casualties and increases the chance of having some uninjured rescuers at hand. Hearing about a person struck by lightning, that may be shocking, but not as much as if you were the victim. Be prepared and make wise choices. Electrical activity in your area. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. By the way, don't forget that we have an entire line of quality medical kits, some one of a kind, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Check them out and get medically prepared for the uncertain future. You'll be glad you did. All right, next up, I have one for Derek Pietro, and this is a twofer, really short second one and a pretty in-depth first one. Uh, dealing with spot rust on a vehicle and doing some touch-up paint work yourself versus having a body shop doing it, and also find some abandoned fuel cans and using them and any concerns to have about what might have been done with them before you get your hands on them. Derek, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got two questions up for you this Friday, so let's get into it. First question up is from Matthew in Iowa. How can I stop rust spots from spreading? I have an 08 Jeep Grand Cherokee with 220,000 miles, still running well with some fixes here and there, and it will run till it dies. The body is in good shape, but I just noticed some rust spots showing up on the rear driver's door, uh, and he sent me a photo on this one. I like to get ahead of it and stop the rust before it gets worse. Any recommendations on good, better, best ways to handle it? Personally, I don't need it to look like new, just look okay. All right, Matt, let's dig in. The best way to handle this situation is body shop. We're just going to avoid that explanation because that's going to be more if you're going to want to spend money. It's a newer vehicle and you're actually concerned about the look of the vehicle. We're not going to get into that. So let's let's get to the good and better ways. So the good way of handling this would be get a palm sander, get some various grits of sandpaper, and we're going to mask off a section where this rust is. Now, let me back up before we get any further. The rust that's on this particular vehicle, in the photo, you can see it's a white truck on the rear rear driver's door. The 
rust spots are little brown spots. They're probably, I'd say, no bigger than the head of a pencil. So this is discoloration because the paint is obviously rusting underneath the clear. Now, this isn't any kind of structural issue. So this is more cosmetic. We're not really having any compromise in the metal that's underneath the paint. And obviously, as you get into worse situations, the, the, the remedy even good and better or best is going to is going to vary depending on the severity of the rot so to speak so even though you're up in, in iowa the rust situation you have going on is very very minor compared to like maine and new hampshire so we want to get rid of the rust using the sandpaper now this means going through the clear the paint almost down to bare metal so that there's no trace of the rust and we don't want to do this in a very large location just basically wherever we see the spots now that we've gotten rid of the rust We've got to put a finish on there that's not only going to protect the metal, but is going to look somewhat okay. This is a do-it-yourselfer job. We're not using a paint booth. You know, this is a, this is definitely a backyard job, but certainly doable. First thing we want to do is, while we have that mask off section, section is to apply a primer. Once the primer's on there, we can use a factory matched paint. So how do we get the right color? Well, you can try to Google search, but if you open up your door, there's going to be a little sticker down somewhere and it's going to give you the color and trim. So that's going to be the paint code and it's going to be the interior trim color. If you use the paint code, which is usually the first part of that, that digit or the, the letters, that will tell you exactly what color. So Jeep may have used that or Chrysler may have used that on other vehicles like Dodges and, and cars and pickup trucks. So if you look the code up, I'm sure Duplicolor or somebody sells an aerosol off the shelf. You can probably get it right on Amazon. That's the color we want to use because that's going to duplicate what the color is on the car already. We're not going to use some generic white or something like that because it's going to stand out like a sore thumb. So probably worth just an extra couple of dollars to get the color matched specific to your vehicle. So once you spray that on there, you want to go super light with it. It's easier to do many, many light coats than maybe one or two super heavy coats where you could possibly make it run. So the lighter, the better, multiple coats. Now, you could probably be done at this point if you really wanted to go one step further to, to make it maybe the, the better repair. It would be to wet sand this in between. So as you get some color on there, we're going to use a super fine sandpaper. This is going to be usually like a 2,000 grit. We're going to run water over the door while we're wet sanding it and that will get rid of a lot of the blemishes and kind of really smooth out the paint layer and then you can also apply clear coat to this as well and then do the wet sand as well now you're going to probably see the line you know you're, i don't expect that you're a body man and you're going to feather this out there's really no way to do this but it will look presentable you'd have to really know what you're looking for and go oh okay obviously there's a repair on that corner of the door so i'd say that this is presentable super easy to do you could probably do it in a weekend you know as if you had some dry weather out in the driveway, no problem whatsoever. Now, Matt, another thing is that the photo you sent me, you really don't have a huge amount of rust problem on that corner of the door. This is very, very minor cosmetic. I, it didn't even seem like there was any kind of bubbling going on. So I, I don't think, you know, 220,000 miles that if you drove that car for, say, even another three to five years that you'd have any kind of major structural problem with rot going on. But obviously, I know, like, she got some round, brown rust stains on the door and you want to take care of it. You know, go ahead and fix it if you want. If you got something, a little project you want to take care of on a weekend or something like that, I get it. But I don't think you're going to have any major structural problem with where you're at right now. Now, I've got an 84 Suburban. The body is absolutely mint. The truck came from the Pacific Northwest and has never seen a New England winter. So overall, the body is, is in serious condition, but the paint's faded, the clear coat's coming off of it. 
and I had one spot where there was some rust bubbling on a rocker panel just as you open the door. Now, obviously, I don't want that to get any worse, and I'm kind of at a stage with the project where I don't want to spend any kind of time and money doing metal work because I'm not ready to really respray the whole truck yet. I don't think I'm going to be there for at least another five years. So I want to mitigate the rust and the rot taking place. So I took a angle grinder and I got a wire wheel for it and I wire wheeled all of that down to bare metal. And I've got a couple little perforations in there, but I'm not too concerned about it. I just want to get rid of the rust. I don't want it to get worse. So once I've prepped that surface and got it down to bare metal, I got some primer on there. And then the next step is I used some rust-oleum so i got a blue i think it was a navy blue and black and started to mix up the two colors until i got a very very close color matched dark blue for that particular vintage and applied it to the rocker it's very very close you open the door you can almost not even tell it was done but i know that i'm preserving the metal that's there so that way i don't have to deal with any kind of other bigger rod issues in the next couple of years and it's kind of taken care of. It's it's a stopgap to getting the entire truck painted or really doing a professional level job and then having it look nice. Now, of course, using Rust-Oleum, you couldn't paint on top of that with like a water-based paint or traditional automotive paint. So you'd have to sandblast that or strip it off before you did anything, but it's a good stopgap. So if there's somebody in your situation that's got a little bit worse damage to their vehicle, you know, this is another option too of using some alternatives than say just going to a body shop. All right, second quick question up from Dylan. He's got one on fuel cans. So as good little ants, we pick up free things off the side of the road. Recently, we picked up some gas cans. Are there any considerations I should follow before using them? I'm concerned about foreign debris in the can from misuse. Well, Dylan, quick answer, not at all. So if you pull the cap off of that, you can see down in there. If there's no debris, you're in pretty good shape. Okay, so if you see some little floaties down at the bottom, I would simply just wash them out with water. Tip the can upside down, make sure it has a good drip dry, and just let it sit out in the sun. Make sure there's no more water left in the can when you're done, and you're good to go. If you have fluid inside of them, we really don't know what that is, I would possibly collect this in a small container that you can seal off, maybe like a soda bottle or something like that, and then probably take it to your local transfer station where they can dispose of any kind of chemicals, because we don't know what it is. Well, Dylan, I hope that answers your question. Check out AffordableDCGenerators.com for an affordable DC power supply solution. On my YouTube channel, I've got a video on the Sportsman 1000. I brought this guy to camp, used it to make some drip coffee, and just an overall quick review on that little guy. It's a super functional and cheap multi-tool for doing small little jobs, and it's super cheap at 200 bucks. Check that video out and subscribe to my channel. Thanks for the questions, guys. Take care. Next up, Darby Simpson with some thoughts on websites for agricultural businesses. And I think this applies to just about any small business, by the way, but he's coming from that ag perspective. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of the Grass-Fed Life Podcast here to answer another question again this week. And this question actually came about uh, from a, a discussion group I'm a part of. Someone was starting their farm business and they're you know, kind of getting things up and going. And one of their questions was, do I really need a website for my business? I think I'm just going to use Facebook marketing because that's all I should need. And... Boy, oh boy, is there a lot that goes into that one. Um, you know, look, starting out, if you just want to put yourself out on social media, just put your farm out there, that's totally fine. But yes, you absolutely need a website if you want to be a legitimate business. And that was my response to them. Like, you only need a website if you want to be a legitimate for-profit business. 
It's the cost of doing business. It's called overhead. It's part of what is required in today's economy. If I see a farm that doesn't have a legit website that I can go to and investigate, I'm automatically going to assume there's something fishy about your operation, some things maybe you don't want me to know, like do you actually exist? Do you actually have a physical location? Um, you know, are you actually producing this stuff or are you just flipping it? That like that's what it stimulates in my mind. And I know that it stimulates those same types of questions in other consumers' minds as well because having done literally over 1,000 farmers' markets and talking with literally tens of thousands of customers over the years, I know this is how they think, particularly when it comes to the small ag movement and especially when we're talking about livestock. Yes, you absolutely need a website. You don't just need a website uh, because you need to look legitimate. You also need a website and social media because you need as many ways to get the message out about what you're doing as is possible. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with making use of social media because we like diversity, but the website should be the basis for our sales. Now, you know, maybe if you've got some little side hustle business where you're selling stuff, you're, you're buying something, you know, some gizmo or widget and, and flipping it and reselling it. Facebook marketing is fine or just having a Facebook page is fine, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having a literal business where you are producing something and you need a website that you control and that only you control and you own all the content. That is also very, uh, very important in our current climate because as we have seen, Facebook pages can just disappear. Look, years ago, our Facebook uh, page was probably the single best marketing tool that we had for our farm. I, I remember one time, uh, we were raising poultry and we were raising pork, but we were just getting to the point where we could offer a little bit of retail beef. And I remember we got back half of a cow uh, that we were going to, to retail all the cuts. And I put that on, on Facebook. Uh, and literally, I'm not exaggerating, within 24 hours, every single piece of that cow was gone. People bought it. They drove to the farm. They picked it up. It was gone. Uh, we used to be able to do that with all kinds of things on Facebook. But we've had some pretty negative experiences with Facebook. Um, number one, you know, we used to have all these wonderful ratings on Facebook where people would go out and review our farm and we'd get five stars, we'd get four stars or whatever. And I was really proud of that, you know, and you could see that rating system in there. Uh, and then one day I noticed my rating had plummeted from like 4.9 to like 3.7. And I got into Facebook and, and, and got on to all the reviews. And what did I find? A bunch of local vegan activists who had gone out and left one-star reviews. And once one guy did it, he told all of his buddies to go do it. And they all did. And they all went out there and started leaving all these erroneous negative reviews. And, and frankly, it made us look like garbage. And I appealed to Facebook multiple times, and they refused, outright refused, to do anything about the lies that were made up and perpetrated against our business. 
And I actually messaged the guy and told him if he didn't remove those comments that I was going to sue him. And I could have. I had an attorney look at it. So he, he did. He went and removed them, and then he put out another negative review later, and it just became this back-and-forth thing of destroying our good name. So I finally just deleted all the reviews. I just took that off. Couldn't use it. Um, I will also tell you that the other issue with with Facebook is that, like I had mentioned earlier, that cow you know, used to put something out there, and boom, it just went. Well, now you're throttled. If you don't pay to boost that post, people aren't going to see it. You're going to get throttled. And if you don't believe me, well, whatever, go out and do it and, and, and prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. It's just not going to take off and catch fire like it used to unless you give them money. Now, it's their platform. They own it. You know, if you're on that platform or any other social media platform, you're basically agreeing to play by their rules, which I don't like, and I think they're unfair, and I think they suck. But look, that's that's the way it is. It's theirs, and if you want to play in their sandbox, you got to play by their rules. Um, and, and their rules basically say, you know, give us money. Well, if you're going to spend money to promote yourself and your farm to be successful, then we're right back to square one. And that is you need to invest money to control a website that that you own, you own the content, and only you uh, can, can modify that content. Um, because, again, all it takes is one activist without any legitimate gripe to drag you through the mud or to destroy you. Uh, I, th- I think it's probably safe to say when we're talking about animals, you know, um, that all it takes is, is one vegan activist inside of a social media organization that doesn't like you to destroy you. And now how are people going to find you? Well, Facebook was my marketing gig. That's, that's how I got the, the word out. Well, that's just stupid. I'm sorry. That's just – it's absolutely stupid. And if you say, hey, you know what? I, I don't want to spend the money on a, a website, 20 30 bucks a month or hire somebody to do it or whatever, you're not ready to own a business. If you're not ready to spend that, to, to have that, you know, that, that cost of doing business, that little bit of overhead, do yourself a favor. Do not go start a business. What you need to heavily be relying on is your website and email traffic. The social media stuff, that's window dressing. It's it's bonus, it's fluff, it's extra. You know, I, I feel like you gotta have it, but to say that you're gonna rely on that as your only marketing strategy is frankly just a really, really bad idea. So do you need a website? Yes, you do. It's easier than ever. If you wanna use something like uh, you know, Squarespace or Wix, there's all these plug and play platforms where you don't have to know much about anything to do with programming. You don't have to be an expert. You can go that route. You can still hire somebody. There's plenty of, you know, guys that build websites on the side will help you manage it, can help you do plugins to, you know, uh, uh, do order processing, whether that's, you know, through custom programming or uh, different uh, plugins that are out there and available. It all exists. Make use of it. It's great technology. So that's my two cents on do you need a website for your business? 
You betcha, especially if you're in the farming space, which is where I'm at. So that's been it for this one. Thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. To learn more about me, check out grassfedlife.co and all the resources we have out there. There's over 140 free podcasts. We've also got a new uh, free mini farm course that you can sign up for and make use of. No strings attached. Just head on out to grassfedlife.co, uh, click on courses, and look for the free mini uh, farm course. Hope you find it useful. Thank you very much, and keep those questions coming. As many of you guys know, I've had the great Facebook exodus recently, and I have to say that there's uh, there's a certain freedom in not relying on them for anything anymore. Uh It does suck that all my like personal friends are still there and have no interest in going anywhere with alternative media. But as far as business, I have seen, just like Darby said, the ROI on my efforts steadily declined for the last 10 years on Facebook. Let's take all of the censorship bullshit out of it. Let's take out all the banning of accounts. Let's take all of the New World Order type freaking 1984 crap that they're doing out of it and just look at it as, well, how good how good does it work? And it works about good enough to make it barely worth still doing for some people, in my opinion. And everything you do on any platform that you don't own should be designed to, and I've said this forever, to take the person and take the connection with the person and move it into some sort of relationship where you own it and you control it and it's yours and it's not theirs. Because it, it, it's in a way, it's like an incestuous marriage with your customer. Like a, a, a good, solid marriage is you and your wife. And, of course, state made it into an incestuous relationship. Your state marriage is an incestuous relationship. It's not between you and your wife or you and your husband. It's between you, your husband, or you and your wife, and the state that you reside in. And the way I can prove that to you is real simple. If I get married in Texas, there's a contract between myself and my wife inherent to the laws within the state of Texas that state things like in Texas, there's no such thing as alimony, for one. So when we enter into that agreement, that covenant, that legal covenant, because there's a spiritual side to marriage and a legal side to marriage, as soon as the state gets involved. So we, we enter into that covenant with a, hopefully an understanding of what marriage means within our state. So life goes on, da-da-da-da-da, and we move to, let's say, a state like New Jersey or Pennsylvania, because we hate ourselves. So we move there. And we have been completely happy with the contract that we've had between ourselves and the state of Texas since we got married where the contract was executed. Now, let's say we moved to a state that has alimony, just as one example. And something goes wrong and we decide to get a divorce. Now, you would think that the contract having been entered into the state of Texas would be governed under the laws within the state of Texas, but it wouldn't. The state of Pennsylvania, simply by us existing there, alters our contract and changes what it means to be married and what it means for a marriage to be dissolved. And that's what a third party does. A third party can change an agreement without your consent. Without your consent. And that's what Facebook does. It changes the agreement without your consent. It gives you a new 4,000 pages of uh, terms to approve that no one ever reads. That's what all of these platforms do. And they are what they are, and you use them for what they do for you, but then you get that relationship under your control, or they will change it, 
They will absolutely change it. Good stuff from Darby. Let's listen to uh, Ken Berry here on PSA tests, prostate cancer, and what we need to think about as we age as men. Hello, Jack, and all you survivors and strivers. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Jeff. Uh, Jeff uh, asked about PSA levels in men. That PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen. It's a, an a- annual test that most men start getting past the age of 50 to check on their prostate to see if there's any sign in the bloodstream of prostate cancer. So Jeff is a 64-year-old male, and he had a recent PSA test result of 4.03. And after meeting with his urologist, the decision was made to to wait three months and redo the test before taking any other action. And, Jeff, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, As a man gets older, a normal PSA level actually becomes higher and higher. So for men below the age of 50, they should have a PSA less than 2.5 nanograms per milliliter. That's the the U.S. measurement. The measurement might be different in other countries. Men between the ages of 50 and 59 should have a PSA less than 3.5. Men uh, in the range of 60 to 69 should have a PSA less than 4.5. And then men over the age of 50, need to have a level less than 6.5. And so many doctors don't know about this, the, the age differentiation of the cutoffs. And so many doctors, if they have a, a gentleman over the age of 70 who has a PSA of, of 5, will freak out and refer him to a urologist, even though that's a completely normal measurement for a male over the age of 70. So I hope this helps answer your question. I think waiting three months is perfectly appropriate. I've got a video about uh, prostate health on my YouTube channel if you want to check that out. This is Dr. Barry. I'll talk to you guys next time. All right, so I want to take this final segment here and talk to you about how I might design a city. And as I said, this came from a comment on the blog. We were talking about basically the real estate turmoil, uh, basically a real estate atomic bomb that I see going off in, in cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York, Chicago, where there have been, I mean, there's been videos, and the news doesn't seem to want to cover it because they don't like it, but there's been videos of, of what looks like a convoy of U-Haul and rider trucks leaving places in New York City, for instance. I've seen lines of people waiting to go into a U-Haul facility in New York, it looks like people lining up for a concert. So this is happening. And we talked to, and, you know, he said, I think that these landlords will get bailed out. And, and Evelyn, another con- contributor to the bo- uh, blog, answered Nick and said, but, yeah, you can't, that doesn't mean you fix the underlying problem. What happens when all these things are empty? Or like I see happening, a lot of these, like, tiny micro apartments in New York, um, you know, this high-density stuff, I see a world in which a lot of them, to make the whole thing work, they start tearing down walls between them and, and combining two, three units into one reasonable-sized place for people to live. Um, but he said, well, how would you design a modern city You know, if, if we had to start all over again? What would you do? And I decided to come at this from a totally different standpoint. How would I design a city... If I was given a place to do it, and I want to come at it from, I want to come at it from a fresh start perspective. I want to come at it from, I'm not 
causing anybody any misery by what I'm doing because a design is limitations. A design has restrictions. In fact, the more restrictions, the more eloquent the design is, is a, a quote from Jeff Lott. And I am coming at this from a permaculture perspective. And some of the stuff that I say may think make you think, Jack's gone statist. Hell, Jack's gone Agenda 2030. You know, no, 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 no. Because I'm going to come at this from the standpoint of if we're going to design a city that's really going to work well, we might get it wrong. And so everybody that's involved in that should come to it with an understanding of that. And they should come to it completely voluntarily. And no one that's living anywhere where things are a certain way should have things that used to be a certain way that they liked, and that's why they were there, turned upside down on its head and taken away. And no one that's already happy with the way things are where they are should have something shoved down their throat that they don't want. And I think there's enough space to do this the right way where people can start looking at this as laboratories of liberty. Just because there's restrictions on something doesn't mean there isn't liberty. Restrictions on things become an infringement to liberty when they're done without your consent. And it doesn't matter if it's done by democracy. That's 49% of the people being told what to do by 51% of the people. I, I, I'm not okay with that. So if anything sounds that way, understand, we're coming at this from brand new, brand spanking new square of dirt, a couple miles by a couple miles, who knows how big it's going to be. It depends how much they'll give me. Um, but we're going to sell it into existence, a fresh, clean start. Things will be funded by people buying. So this could be done with some sort of consortium. There's, there's a lot of ways that that initial place, that location, could be determined. But then it's broken up and it's sold off into pieces and parts for people to then self-develop. And you let the market do things. But, you, I mean, it would require things like finding businesses to come in, etc., I'm coming at this from the permaculture ethics and prime directive standpoint. And I'll review those quickly. And as I go through these bullet points of things that I, I think make sense for a city today, I'll tell you what, what really is driving them, whether it's the prime directive, one of the ethics, all the ethics, all of the above, etc. So the first thing in permaculture is the prime directive. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for that of ourselves, for ourselves and for that of our children. So we need to, if we're going to design a city based on that, then we need to make sure that the city can sustain itself and provide for itself and doesn't outgrow itself. Then we have care of the earth, so we need to not be screwing stuff up because it's the only, the only planet we got. Spaceship Earth is the only one we have. We don't have a second one. Care of the earth, care of people. That means we need to be doing this with a mindset toward taking care of the people that live there. And, 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 and giving them as much freedom as we possibly can when we live communally. And then return of surplus is the third ethic. But the original statement of the third ethic, which is a big part of return of surplus, but I think is more in tune with understanding the design of a city, is setting limits to population and consumption. This gets people, ooh, here we do, this is eugenics or some shit. No, it's not. It is actually the opposite of what the global plan is. The global plan is to cram as many people as possible into as small an area as you possibly can. Setting limits to population and consumption is saying, hey, wait a minute, that's not a good idea. Let's make sure there's enough room for everybody 
so that everybody can be productive and that we can care for the earth and care for people and we can take surplus and return it to the aim of the first two. So return of surplus to the end of caring for the earth and caring for people by setting limits to how much you can take and how much, how much you can occupy. So if I said, you know what, let's just get rid of that ethic. Let's not do that because it makes some people uncomfortable. And I have a three-acre property here, and it was going to be the site of New Spiritopia. And he said, well, how many people are you going to put in that three acres? And I said, there's no limit on the population, as many as we can fit, high as we can build. You said, that's stupid. You'd be right. That's what I'm talking about. So here's where we go from this. I think, first of all, and this can be done mainly by selling it into existence, because you're making a financial contribution to the future by buying your piece. But we need to encourage or maybe even some way require productive contributions from all. If you're going to be there, you're going to be in some way contributing to that city's vitality. There's no public welfare program at all. You don't, that doesn't work. If somebody needs help, that's part of being a, a contributor. Maybe that's what you do is you help people that need help. Maybe what you do is you, you know, I don't know, citizen patrol the neighborhood as part of security apparatus. Maybe what you do is you take care of the fruit trees in the media, and I don't know. But there should be kind of a mindset, and again, this is not going into some place and changing it. This is building a place from the ground up so you know coming in. And I think just by requiring a person to come in and buy their way in, you want a lot, here it is. You want to build a house, go at it. Right there, you end up with people who are contributing, and they're of a contributor mindset. But I think that has to be a big piece of it, and that's the prime directive. You can't have a society that's re taking responsibility for itself if you have a society built on a parasitic class. You have to have a productive class. And the productive class needs to not only be the majority, but if you're, if you're going to do this from the ground up, you need to build that into the design where it almost doesn't work. It's not that you ban parasites. It's just the parasite is not going to do well in that environment. Um, I do think what we do need to limit population and consumption. So I would say an ideal city would have a, and this is a maximum size. I think we could build a really great city with 1,200 people in it. But a maximum size of about 20,000 to 50,000 people, and that's following the third ethic. And I, when I look at cities around the country, the second they cross 50,000, they end up 100,000, it seems like, or at least up into the 75,000. There's not a lot of cities that are like 51,000 people that stay there. And once they cross into that threshold of heading toward 100,000 people, a lot of problems that don't exist before that exist after that. So that seems like a good target. I think 20,000 people is a, is a substantial city. And I don't think it needs to be much larger. But this doesn't have to be done by passing a law. This can be done from the beginning, since we're taking a bare piece of earth and building a city, by determining how big the lots are people can buy. And if we do some other things like we don't have multi-tenant housing, or at least high-density multi-tenant housing... We, we will create a natural limit. We'll create a natural limit. And if we create, let's say, some something like a nature buffer at the perimeter of this city. And remember, I own this land. 
right? Or some consortium doing this design bought this land. There's nothing here. No one's having anything taken away from them. So we already have this nature strip around the perimeter that sets this is it. When it's full, it's full. You want another city like this? Go over there and build one. And I think that's how these cities should be. They should be self-replicating. So growth at a certain point is, let's make another one. And since these things have a great footprint for the earth, that's okay. And there's so much land. We'll never run out of land before we run out of people to fill them with. So there's no worries with that, in my opinion. I also think that it should be designed with a complex of villages. And this needs to be different from what city zoning is designed to do to like keep poor people over here in rich I don't mean that this would be very egalitarian but I think just the strength the structure and framework of the design could be done so that if we take lots and we put them in a clump here and a clump there and a clump here and a clump there and that kind of goes around the town center which is similar to how suburbs have been designed in the past you end up with your city core being able to provide services and mercantile and exchange and all that for the people that live there. But if we start with a flat base design, it's not already in place. We can design that infrastructure to be really accessible to people inward, and you'll get a natural creation of what I'm calling a complex of villages. And I, I bring this from Toby Hemingway's work where he was trying to figure out how you would build a, a permaculture city, And he looked back historically, and about the total number of people that a single person can know well enough to kind of see every day, know who they are, know their family, know about them, and keep that all in their head is about 200 people. So these complexes <clears throat> of villages of about 200, and that doesn't mean you don't know anybody outside of there. It doesn't mean there's a fence up that keeps you in there. You just If you create that, the human dynamic will take over. And because people are there because they want to be there, they'll form strong relationships within that village, but then they'll form inter-village relationships as well. So that's, that's another way, and I would call that the first and the second ethic are both driving that, taking care of the earth and people. Um, if there's going to be public transportation, and I'm not saying there would be, but if there's going to be public transportation, it must go where people go. Dallas-Fort Worth is the most idiotic public transportation system I've ever seen in my life. They have all this money they've spent on these dart trains. They don't go anywhere that people go. They go from the very expensive suburbs into downtown Dallas. And the very expensive suburb people, when they go to downtown Dallas, they're going for a sporting event or they're going to work, and most of them won't use that train because they have BMWs. You have one of the largest airports in the world in Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. You have two of the largest cities in the world in Dallas and Fort Worth. And we've put in nine gazillion dollars worth of rail And it just seems to me, I mean, I know I'm just a redneck hippie duck farmer, that if I was doing it for Dallas-Fort Worth, which now we're into the 6 million population and different than I'm talking about, but if I was going to do it here, the first thing I would have done is I would have built a rail that went from DFW Airport straight to downtown Dallas in the most direct way that I could get there, and then anything that made sense as a stop station in between, you could have put that in, and you could have done it for very little money, compared to the total cost of that piece of rail. Then I would have put a piece of rail in that went directly from Dallas-Fort Worth to downtown Fort Worth. And then I would have put in an 18-mile rail that went between Fort Worth and Dallas and made a triangle. And then if anything seemed like it really would have made sense, 
built off of that triangle so that people could go from Dallas to Fort Worth and from the places that they need to get to into Dallas and Fort Worth, but so that people who flew into Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport for a conference in Dallas or a conference in Fort Worth or business in Dallas or business in Fort Worth could have just got on a train and ended up there. Because I've flown into to cities like this, and it's incredibly convenient. And guess what? When you get on that train, there's a whole shitload of other people to get on the train with you and go to that city. So... I'm not talking about that size, but if there is going to be public transport in a place like this, then it should be something that works for people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be public. It could be private. It could be a very uber-friendly, or it could be a very tech-friendly. There is, for instance, in downtown Dallas, there is a bus that you can get on. Nobody drives it. I'm not, and it's been there a long time. Because it only goes to certain places, and the places it goes generally don't have any traffic. They're like walking area, like it just almost like a trolley. And you can get on it and you go to different places. So if you had this town-centric model with this kind of commerce area downtown and these beltway-type village suburbs to this city, but it's all the same city, again, keeping this in the 20,000 to 30,000 headcount, you could then have some pretty effective form of transportation where people could use bike and walking and pretty much live very active lives within that city without necessarily needing a car. But I wouldn't say you can't have one. I'm not. My goal is not to get rid of cars. It's for the car to sit more than it gets driven unless the person needs it or wants it. Um, the only zoning requirement, I think, that I would have in my my jacktopia and I'm, I'm not married to any of this by the way I'm going to throw something at you at the end of it uh, but no high density housing and I don't know exactly what that means yet don't ask me to tell you but I know what it does it, I know I can give you an example of what it absolutely means is not happening um, a building that a thousand people live in that would be an extreme example that's not happening um Massive amounts of apartment complexes and things like that. Not happening. Um, I, I would say that single-family housing should have a minimum lot size. And you can do that again simply by when you buy your piece of property to build your home or to put your business on, there's a minimum size depending on what that property is for. And so I would try to keep no other zoning requirements at all. If somebody wants to run a business from their home, let them. Yeah, just try to keep that as flat as possible, but the high density screws this up badly. That doesn't mean that there might not be some apartments or multi-tenant housing. And again, I don't know exactly what that looks like yet, but you do not want something where you can start stuffing more people onto a piece of land than that piece of land can support. Yeah, I look at it this way. My favorite place to vacation, y'all know this if you've been listening for any length of time at all, is Sanibel Island, Florida. Sanibel Island did something that no other place I know of in Florida did. They limited how many floors a hotel or a condo or anything like that could have. And I believe it's two for hotels, two for single-family housing, and I think condos can have three, but there's a very small area where those condos can be. And because of this, when you go to the beach at Sanibel, even when you would call it crowded, it doesn't look like that shit you see on TV, like you know, in Rio de Janeiro or something, where there's like a person every two feet on the beach. 
And, and even if it's a little crowded in one spot, you can always walk a couple hundred yards down the beach and be by yourself. And that is a direct result of not letting somebody come in there and taking a couple hundred feet of linear feet and put in a building with 87 floors in it because that's what soars that population. So I would that would be the, the way that I would limit population beyond the borders of the town is limit the density of population. Uh, definitely nature strips and parks and everything with productive plants. Not every plant need to be productive, but everything have productive plants. Depending on the climate, you take the, the lowest work, highest return things. If you're in the south, pecan trees would just be one example. You know, pecan trees, pears, they do well in the south. North, you know, you do apples. You do, you know, in the south, you back to peaches. Uh, but definitely, and then if you want, just take. No control over this other than, you know, don't go cutting trees down type of thing. Um, because what you'll find is that people will figure out ways to self-organize around the fact that all the pecans fall at this time of year. They really will. Um, Bike-friendly infrastructure, I think, is certainly important, and that would be the first and second. I think the nature strips are all three exits and the prime directive. The no-high-density housing is the second and third ethic. The public transportation is the first and second ethic. I forgot to tell you guys that. Um, but definitely bike-friendly and walking-friendly infrastructure uh, would be the way that... And, and again, I want you to realize, I'm talking about you do this with a master design And then you break it up into lots and you start selling it and you start courting businesses and courting people to come in. So this is like no one is having this done to them. Please understand that. Um, any city services, I'm putting my status hat on a little bit here because this is a city, right? If I can do this my own way, there'll be no government whatsoever. It will be a complete private uh, anarchotopia. But if it's going to be somewhat of a city that has more typical city services, Um, they have to be designed to not require growth. And that's something that almost nobody's doing. And what I mean by that is we have cities that once they begin to grow, they begin to grow services. And once they grow services, they begin to grow, and they keep doing this. And what you end up with is this massive top-heavy system where if this, and this is why these cities, big cities are in trouble. If the population of the city goes down by five, you know, 5%, Everything breaks It's because it's a Ponzi scheme. Retirement is a Ponzi scheme in these cities. The only way we can afford to pay all the teacher retirement tomorrow is to have more teachers paying into the retirement today. It's like a microcosm of Social Security. So whatever services are provided by the city to any sort of a taxpayer base or anything like that need to be designed from the beginning so that they do not have to scale upward that they are designed to hit that brick wall, that brick ceiling, that says we've hit our population size. People that are born here and uh, their parents stay and they want another house are going to have to go build another, uh, another you know, anarchotopia or whatever. Like we, we, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have to wait for somebody to move out. By the way, think of the property values in a place like this. Right, without a big extortionary property tax against them. Because we're not trying to design uh, city services to the point where you know somebody comes and wipes your butt when you use a public toilet for you. So you have a high property value but a low tax uh, footprint against it. 
And so it has to be designed that way. And exactly how, I'm not sure yet. Next, technology-friendly. And that's one way of saying it needs to have high-speed Internet. And I mean really, really good high-speed Internet to enable people to be able to go to that place, to live in that place, and to be able to work for somebody that is still in you know Chicago or New York or somewhere in Rome or somewhere around the world. To empower people of means to be able to come there and run businesses and run uh, technology-based businesses, etc., And, and so that people can run entertainment businesses, et cetera, and things like that. And uh, last, the security for it should be largely private or democratized. And what I mean by democratized, because democracy can be a bad thing, right? But I think we can agree that people should have a say in how their neighborhoods are policed. And I think if you're going to have a – you can have a police force – that's private security contracted with and collective as far as how people pay for it, and that there can be some sort of democratic process. So these guys aren't doing the job right. We want to replace them. And I think if you have that, you won't actually replace them very often. And I think that security in a city needs to be from the standpoint of the preservation and protection of property and individual rights. In other words, you do what you want in your property until it actually hurts somebody else. And I think that you can build something like this. And, and the end I'm going to have, have with this is I don't know. What are your ideas? In fact, I'm thinking this might be a cool thing. We have some breakout sessions at the workshop coming up to do a mastermind discussion on. Just get you know, 10, 10, 15 people together and whiteboard it out. What, what would you do? How would you design this? How would you make this work? Is the city too ambitious? How would you make 100 acres work? for a couple hundred people. How would you design basically a small town? How would you make that town able to scale and get larger? How do you do this without interfering with the liberties and rights of other people? How do you do this and get around the state's desire for you not to do this, etc.? So, and, and by the way, I wanted to finish with something else on that. The ma on a mastermind group, everybody is a mastermind. Remember I said a person is smart and people are stupid? Paraphrasing Tommy Lee Jones' character in... Uh, men in black I believe that I believe people behave stupidly in, in, in large scared animalistic groups just like he said but I believe that every person has the potential to be really smart and to be able to contribute and I think that uh, mastermind groups don't need to just be a bunch of people for you know with Mensa memberships that it's amazing what happens when you get three or four or five or eight people together with a complete understanding that anybody can say anything, and if it's stupid, we'll let it go. Like, we'll let you say it and let you think about it, and maybe maybe we'll think it's stupid and maybe we're wrong. And every idea is worthy of consideration before it's, you know, pushed to the side. And so I'm thinking about maybe doing that for one of the breakout sessions at the workshop, if you're looking forward to maybe doing that and you're going to be uh, coming to the TSP 2020 workshop. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with uh, our... T-SPAS item of the day. Remember, you can always help support the Survival Podcast whenever you do your online shopping just by going to tspaz.com first. Today's item of the day is a product made by a company called Sadoff, S-A-D-A-F, and it's sumac. Yes, like the sumac, like staghorn sumac, like that bush you see with the pink cone on it. That's poison. No, that's the white sumac that hangs upside down, the red cone, except it's a different species of sumac. This is a sumac that's only grown 
in the Middle East. It only grows in Mediterranean climates. It can't handle our winters in most of the United States anyway. And this is like one of the best spice seasonings in the world that Americans are not familiar with. Like it's sad that we don't use it. Uh, I give away a couple different recipes for this stuff. It is very lemony in flavor. Uh, I give away a link where you can learn how to make uh, uh, za'atar, uh, which is uh, uses this plus some other things uh, in it. That's uh, one of the most popular seasonings in the Middle East. This is fantastic on fish and vegetables. Uh, it's really, really easy to use. No, it's not poison sumac. It's not going to make you sick or kill you. Um, I also, the brand that I'm giving you, I give for a reason I shouldn't have to. It's one of those things I have to teach that I don't like to teach because it's so stupid that it's true. Sumac is not super expensive, but it's, it's, it's not super cheap either. It's definitely not as cheap as salt. Okay? So a lot of things that are labeled sumac are actually like 50% salt. Some of them say salt in fine print. Some of them don't say salt. And trust me, I've ordered it, and you taste it, and you go, let's have salt. This one is pure sumac the way it's supposed to be. You can find it at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com and start scrolling down for all the recent posts, including this podcast. Another quick announcement. Uh, many of you have probably long ago stopped bothering to go to the website to listen to the podcast because you use an app or, you know, like Apple Podcasts or Last FM or something, and that's all fine. But also because our player has sucked. Our podcast player on the site has sucked. It's a very old one. And when flash support went away, it didn't work worth shit. And the problem is when you have over 2,700 podcasts on an old player that's legacy and not being updated anymore, switching to a new one is kind of scary, and is it going to work? And I found one made by Blueberry that works beautifully. So there's a new podcast player on the site. So if you want to go look up an episode, and while you're using the show notes and all, listen to the sh you know right off the site, it now works flawlessly check it out you can come by and look at today's episode 2734 to get all the cool links and everything and listen to it on our new podcast player and hey have you heard about the telegram channel you should get on the telegram channel the channel not the group i know some of you like i don't want to be on a group all these people talking about all their stuff all the time no the channel's cool you'll just get an alert whenever i publish something new it'll just be like hey new video published or hey new podcast published and uh, you can find the uh, the link to join the channel in today's show notes as well uh, i'll put it there and you can always check out the get social tab at the survivalpodcast.com for all the ways to stay in touch with us with that let's go ahead and wrap up the show with the song of the day today. And um, as I said, I've been doing songs that take me back to a specific point or time in my life, make me think of something special, because I think that's something that songs do for a lot of people. Um, one of my favorite songs, not the song of the day, is uh, well, What Are You Listening To? Um, what Are You Listening To? by uh, Chris Stapleton. And that song's all about how songs bridge people together because we all have those songs in our lives and when someone else shares that song even if it means something different to them it still creates some level of a bridge today's song is not a real deep meaningful song to most people and I'm not coming at it from the angle that the song's coming at it it's by Brad Paisley and it's called I'm Gonna Miss Her and it's about a feller that uh, 
was told by his, his better half, his wife or his girlfriend, I'm not sure which, he doesn't really say, that if he leaves to go fishing today, she won't be there when he gets back. And he goes anyway, and he says, boy, I'm going to miss her <laughs> when I get home. And he talks about how he could head home now and maybe fix everything, but, oh, look at there, I got a bite, right? So it's just this funny, goofy song, but it makes it's a very... It's a very meaningful song to me. And it's because of my friend Hal Dodd, who passed away back in 2010. I did an episode when he passed away. It was in the 500s. I'll link it in the show notes to it today if you want to learn about the lessons I learned from how that man lived his life. He passed away. He was only in his early 40s. He came home after running, called his wife, said he felt great, and had a heart attack uh, right inside his front door to the point when she got home, she, could, she couldn't really open the door because he was laying there uh, long since passed. Because he called her, you know, like first thing in the morning after he got his run, he was going off to work, so 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. And he had his cell phone in his hand, and he had dialed 9, trying to dial 911 for himself. So he went fast and laid there for the full day, and that's a sad thing. But he was a good man, and he, 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 he meant a lot to me. He was a fishing guy, and he's a guy that taught me Joe Pool Lake. And we spent a lot of time together. And after we uh, – I'd hired him a couple times as a guy, and he got to the point where he wouldn't take my money anymore. We were just friends who went fishing together. And he had a little website called Magnum Sandbass. He had a YouTube channel called Magnum Sandbass. And I don't know what happened to the video that I'm thinking of because he had a habit – he was a quirky guy of taking things down. Because it wasn't working or whatever. Like, it, it's not costing you any money. Just leave it there. No, he's going to take it down. So this video, I, I have no idea where it went. But we were out on Joe Pool one day, myself, uh, he, and, a, and a, another gentleman. And we just got into the fish. And, I mean, we were pulling fish after fish after fish out. And, you know, this is, this is 20, 2000, probably 2008 that this was going on. Pretty shitty video cameras and stuff. So it was kind of this grainy 360 video. But he, he took this video, and we were kind of passing the camera around, filming each other catching these fish. And even we had, like, a, we call it on-the-water boat show. And some of the other boats kind of moved in. But people that know how to fish and not how to screw up a, a good bite like that. And we had people just busting fish everywhere. So he takes this video and he edits it all together. He's a pretty good editor. And this was the song he put in the background. And there are some videos still up on his old YouTube channel of, of, of us fishing. There's two with me in them. And I watch those videos sometimes and I remember my friend. There's one of him just out fishing by himself, just busting doubles. And I think about fishing with him. But whenever I hear this song, I think about that day with my friend. And he was one of the best friends I've ever had. And he was that rare guy. See, I'm always the kind of guy, I come at this from the Doc Holiday school of thought with friendships. In the movie Tombstone, there's a scene where they're, they're kind, of, kind of going off and, and getting all the bad guys. And uh, Wyatt walks away and Doc's sitting there with the rest of the gang and he's you know dying of tuberculosis, coughing up blood one guy says to him, hey, Doc, what the hell are you doing out here? And he just looks at him and says, Wyatt Earp is my friend. And that guy says, well, hell, Doc, I got lots of friends. And Doc's entire response to that, one of the things that made me identify with a movie character more than anything else I've ever heard was, I don't. 
I don't. I'm not an easy man to be friends with. I'm really not. It's a small group type of thing. Howell was the other kind of guy. He was everybody's friend, but all the everybody's were people like me. He was the guy that was able to be the friend to the person who answers the question, how many friends do you have? And they say, not many, with all of them. And at his memorial where I spoke, it was one of the largest crowds I've ever spoken to. <laughs> a fishing guide passed away at 41, and I had one a larger crowd than I do at a prepper expo or a permaculture event. I guess with the exception of Permaculture Voices 1, it might have been, and maybe one of the Liberty Forms, probably the largest crowd I've ever spoken to. Not so great a subject. But I did make everybody laugh. And the way I made everybody laugh, because I always try to do that if I speak at somebody's memorial, is because if you, if you want to remember somebody, remember them with joy. I said that uh, I got a call at a bar. Actually, a text at a bar from his wife asking me if I'd come speak at his memorial. She didn't know that I didn't know. I mean, she was dealing with her own things. She just lost the man she loved, you know. So I, I got the text message that he had passed away the day before his memorial. And I started talking to the people that I knew in this bar about him. And I said, well, he's been here a lot. He's been here many times. And this bartender, Tyler, says, what's he look like? And without even thinking about it, I said, Texan. <laughs> he looked like a Texan. Like you could have seen a picture of this guy. I don't care where you're from. He's from Texas. In, a, in the best way possible. So that's what this song does for me. It takes me back to when he made that video. And that day with us on the lake together. And that takes me back to all the other days on the lake together. And that just reads to, you know, just re- Pete's that message I give you all the time. Make the most of your dash. You have no idea when your time will run out. And I would have rather spent one more day fishing with my friend than one more day at the office. And with that, hope you enjoy your weekend. Hope you make something great with it. It's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Well, I love her, but I love the fish. I spend all day out on this lake, and hell is all I catch. But today she met me at the door, said I would have to choose. And if I hit that fishing hole today, she'd be packing all her things and she be gone by noon Well I'm gonna miss her I get home Right now I'm on this lake shore and I'm Sitting in the sun I'm sure it'll That door tonight Yeah, I'm gonna miss her On the 
Bye.